0: If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold.
1: This is Voices in AI brought to you by Giggle. I'm Byron Reese. Today our guest is Konstantinos. Karajalios is the Managing Director at the IEEE Standards Association and he holds a PhD in Engineering and Physics from the University of Stuttgart. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Um, So we we were just chatting before the show about what does artificial intelligence mean to you. You asked me that and it's interesting because that's usually my first question which is what is artificial intelligence? Why is it artificial? And Feel free to talk about what intelligence is. Yes. And uh, first of all, uh, we see really a
0: kind of uh, media wave uh, around uh, so-called artificial intelligence. It started uh, two years ago. There seems to be a hype around it. And uh, we have to distinguish... uh, It would be good to distinguish what is marketing, uh, what is uh, real... Uh, and uh, what is propaganda, what is dreams, what are nightmares, and so on. I'm a systems engineer, so I prefer to take a uh, systems approach, and I prefer to talk about, uh, let's say, intelligent systems, which can be autonomous or not, and so on. And uh, again, the big question, and this is a compromise, because uh, the big question is, what is intelligence? Because nobody really knows what is intelligence. And uh, the definitions really vary widely and widely. And uh, I myself uh, tried to understand what is human intelligence at least, or what uh, are some expressions of human intelligence. And uh, I gave uh, a certain, uh, let's say, answer to this question when I was invited in front of the House of the Lords in the testimony. And uh, just to make it now very brief uh, I am not a, an, uh, a supporter of uh, the hype around artificial intelligence Also I'm not even supporting the term itself. I find it is it uh, obfuscates more than it, it reveals and uh, so we I think we need to reframe this dialogue and it takes us away from what from agency from human agency so I have a critique to this, and also I have a, a proposal, a positive proposal.
1: Well, start with your critique. Um, if 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 you think the term is either meaningless or 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 bad, um, why? And what kind of are you proposing as an alternative way of thinking?
0: Yes. Very briefly, because we can talk really for one or two hours. Uh, learn about this and uh, we should not do it uh, my critique is uh, that uh, the the whole context to this terminology uh, is uh, associated with uh, also with a perception of humans and of our intelligence which is quite mechanical that means uh, there is a whole school of thinking uh, and there are many supporters there. Who believe that the humans were just uh, better data processing machines?
1: Well, to, to to stop you right there, let's let's explore that because I think that is the crux of the issue. So, do you believe that humans are not machines?
0: Uh, apparently not. <laughs> I, I don't. No, no. And it's not not only we're not machines. I think uh, because evidently we're not machines, uh, but uh, uh, we're biological and machines are perhaps mechanical, although now the boundaries may blur as we take also biological machines and so on. eh?
1: But But you certainly know know the thought experiment that said if you take what a neuron does and build an artificial one and then you put enough of them together, you could eventually build something that functioned like the brain and then wouldn't it have a mind and wouldn't it be intelligent? And isn't that kind of what the Human Brain Initiative in Europe is trying to do?
0: And this is built... All of this, what you have said, is uh, start with a reductionist assumption about uh, the, the human eh? that uh, our machine is just a very good computer, our, uh, our brain is a very good computer, and uh, it ignores really the sources of our intelligence, which are really not only in our brain. Uh, our intelligence has really several other sources, and we cannot reduce it, to just the synapses in, uh, in the neurons and so on. And, uh, of course, uh, nobody can prove this or the other thing. Uh, I just want to make clear here that the reductionist assumption about humanity is also a religious approach to humanity, but a reductionist religion. And uh, the problem is that the people who support this, they believe it is scientific, and this I do not accept. This is really a religion. Eh? And uh, a reductionist one. And this has consequences about how we treat humans. And this is serious. So if that means if we continue propagating a language which reduces humanity, this will have political and uh, social consequences. Uh, and I think we should resist to this. And uh, I think the best uh, way I have seen expressed this is in an essay by Joe Ito with the title which says it all, Resist Reduction. And I would really suggest that people read this essay because it explains a lot that I'm not able to explain here because of the brevity of
1: time. So you're maintaining that if you adopt this, what you're calling a religious view, a reductionist view of humanity that in, in a way that can go to undermine human rights, and the fact that there's something different about humans that, that, that is beyond purely Absolutely. mechanistic.
0: For instance, uh, I was in an AI conference of a UN organization, which has brought all other UN organizations with deal up with technology together. It was two years ago. And they, are, they were celebrating a, a humanoid, uh, which uh, was pretending to be a human. And uh, the people were celebrating this. And somebody dared to ask this question to the inventor uh, of this thing or to the uh, producer. What uh, do you intend to do with this? And this person spoke publicly for five minutes and could not answer the question. And uh, then he said, you know, and uh, then we're doing it because if we don't do it, others were going to do it. It is better we the first. I find this a very cynical approach, eh? a very dangerous one, and nihilistic. And uh, these persons, with this mentality, we celebrate them as heroes. I think this is too much. We should stop really doing this anymore. eh? We should resist to this mentality and uh, to this ideology. And then uh, the same anthropoid, they made it citizen to uh, Saudi Arabia. I don't remember anymore. eh? I mean, if you make a machine a citizen and you treat your citizens like machines, then we're not going very far as humanity. I think this is a very dangerous path.
1: Um, You may know about about a man named Weizenbaum in the 60s who wrote a program called ELISA, which was a simple chatbot. And when he saw that, people who knew it was a robot, who knew it was a computer, were still kind of pouring their heart out. He turned against AI and, and said that when the machine says, I understand, that it's just a lie. That there's no I, and there's nothing that understands anything. It, it is. It is. It is a manipulation. Um, so I assume the reason that the theory is that there are all kinds of repetitive tasks that people don't want to do. Um, a toll booth operator, as an example, I'm. Not, I've just picked that one up. Something that the, that a machine could do, but we don't want to put people and jobs that machines could do, because that's dehumanizing. So the thesis is there are certain jobs that people don't want to do, but that the people who interact with them want to have a human-like experience. That's the theory. So that maybe at least when I pull up to the toll booth, something humanoid looks at me, smiles and all of that. But you feel that's fundamentally manipulative and it devalues humanity.
0: So, uh, first of all, I'm not. am uh, very much in favor of using technology really to make our life better, because uh, it has really helped prolong our lives, and uh, it has helped a lot. And uh, I very much like uh, the statement of back Mr. Fuller in, back in the seventies of.
1: The oh 70s, yeah, yeah.
0: When he said that. Uh, uh, the technology has brought us in a point in a time and history where we can really fulfill, we can satisfy all the basic needs of humanity without having to go to war against each other for this. So war is obsolete, he said. And that means uh, we, the technologists, have brought really humanity to have a choice to satisfy our basic needs without having to go to war. Instead, technology is used to go to war and to dominate. So, but it is not just technology, it is the political systems in which, in which it is embedded. So uh, I believe that uh, there are many things we can use technology to improve our lives. For instance, pattern recognition. Uh, we can identify an exoplanet out there. Uh, out of these myriads of signals that our telescopes and the satellites are uh, receiving, a human would not be able to do it in, uh, in thousand years. And the systems can do it within uh, an hour and so on. This is fantastic also to pattern recognition for tumors and so on. They can hugely help, but at the source it is us. Uh, it is us using them to enhance our uh, capacities of recognizing things. So, and it is a kind of, uh, as Dorito says it again, it is a kind of extending our intelligence by using all these fantastic tools. Eh? But we should not really uh, follow the path of, the, of uh, constructing a fictive ontology that may come against us from outside and take our position eh? and uh, replace us. And uh, again, here's the question about job elimination through automation. This is the automation problem. It is not about uh, official <coughs> intelligence and so on. And here, I believe that there is a difference between automated systems and intelligent systems. Because an automated system can be very dumb, uh, just doing uh, the same work again and again. Intelligent system is something different. And intelligent systems pose some very interesting challenges also for the organization of work. Because if you have an intelligence system linked with a critical infrastructure, be it uh, the smart grid or, uh, let's say, the safety of a city or uh, military surveillance equipment and so on, then you cannot leave them alone eh, because they can cause a lot of havoc if they go wrong. So you need people there, and these people cannot be isolated. We cannot have uh, Stanislav Petrov uh, waiting alone in his bunker to... uh, and trying to avert the nuclear war. Uh, so you need teams of people uh, who understand how the systems work, who understand when they can go wrong, <clears throat> who can say to them, you know, we made you, and you are wrong, we don't trust you, so we're not going to follow what you're saying. Because if we lose this agency, we're done as
1: humanity, very fast. Right? So, I yeah. clarify something, if you would, please. Do you believe that we can use computers to duplicate human capability a different way, but but that, that isn't really intelligence or do you believe we're that machine learning and the techniques we have at our disposal are never gonna be creative and inspirational and all all of the rest, like do do you object do you, do you say that it's like a cargo cult, it cannot be done, we cannot build artificial minds, or are you saying, we can build them, it's just a mistake to think that that's what we are?
0: Okay. So, we have to go back to where we started our discussion, what is intelligence? Because we can use tools to extend our intelligence, but these tools can never be intelligent themselves. It is us who have the intelligence. <laughs> The tools are just means for us to be faster in our recognition, to be able to make uh, faster decisions, perhaps more accurate, but the systems themselves can never be intelligent because they don't understand the context of what is intelligence. It it is, uh, I mean, okay, uh, uh, and here this is really uh, the approach, what is human and whether we are, uh, let's say, just machines that can be kept, caught up by other machines, which become more and more perfect. eh? And I will give you just an example. Uh, There are several levels of intelligence. If you have a chicken picking the seeds from the ground, it does an intelligent operation. You see, it picks one seed, then the other, and you don't understand exactly why it is picking one time there, and then the other time there. It has a pattern of optimizing its movements. This is the intelligence of a chicken to pick the seeds from the ground. Eh? And we cannot understand this. And a computer would take a lot of time to understand this. Eh? Now, this is, let's say, the most uh, very basic level of intelligence. Another is if you have a, a primate, let's say, a or uh, who can solve really more complicated problems and uh, use some devices and so on. Eh? This is much more sophisticated. This is a higher level of uh, intelligence. So what is human intelligence? How would you really somehow differentiate what is human intelligence compared to a primate, eh? or to to, to an animal which really is very sophisticated, which has emotions, and so on? eh? And I tell you what I believe. Uh, That we humans, we made really a very interesting step in our evolution. Uh, And uh, I have heard some of the other interviews you have taken. You talk about emergence. What is emergence? There is one thing that emerged there. There are two things that emerged that really distinguish us from the animals, I believe. Uh, The one thing is that we are not just, we did not get better in optimizing solutions to problems. Because the chicken is well optimized to solve this specific problem. And there are also other animals which may be much more optimal than we in understanding when there is a danger and run away and so on than we humans. So it is not our capacity to solve problems in an optimal way that distinguishes us. Perhaps there are animals that are better than we are. I think what is unique to to humans, not to all of them, but to many, of us, at least, is the capacity to pose dilemmas. Not problems only, dilemmas with a specific category of problem. And this has really no necessity in nature to pose dilemmas. One could say it is even counter logical eh, to the survivor, because a dilemma has only bad outcomes for the one who poses it. You lose as a person. but the, But the community may win if you pose the right dilemma. And uh, so this is extremely interesting. I know no animal who would have really pose, the capacity to pose dilemmas. Eh? And we do it. And there is no natural reason for doing it. This is an emergence. And it so, is inexplicable. In my, eh, You cannot explain it out of the conditions in which it happened. Eh? This is really
1: a conundrum. So I do want to come back to emergence here, but before we get there, what what do you mean by we pose dilemmas? Give me an example of one of those, please.
0: I mean, dilemma is a problem which has only bad outcomes for the one who poses it. And uh, you need the courage of your heart to pose this dilemma. You see an injustice going around you. And most people accommodate, they don't want to see it, they say, okay, it happens, just be opportunistic, it doesn't uh, affect me. Eh? But there are people who say, no, no, I mean, we cannot live with this, we have to take a position. But if we take a position, my, I may be killed, or my family may be persecuted, eh? and so on. And all the human rights, all the political processes, there are huge dilemmas, the people all suffered, eh? the people who pose the dilemma. Eh? but this is the only way that humanity makes progress by people who really put their own interest at the second level uh, and uh, and they get persecuted, killed, or uh, disadvantaged, and so on. Uh, Why are they doing this? Why are we doing this as humans? So so this this is very interesting. And the intelligence, the human intelligence, is the intelligence to pose these dilemmas in a way that become actionable eh? and they may lead to a new
1: equilibrium afterwards. So I, I read something recently that, that suggested that rats can think about thinking. And, and the experiment went like this. If a rat, you give a rat a puzzle, and if the rat solves the puzzle, he gets a big reward. If he tries and fails, he gets nothing. But if he looks at the puzzle and doesn't try, he gets a little something. And that, according to this one one thing, rats learn this, and they would stare at the puzzle, and if it was really hard, they would think, I can't do that, and they would take their little reward for not even trying. Or they would say, I can totally nail that one, and they would try it and get the reward. Uh, Assuming that that, that that really happened and that, you know, it's repeatable and all of that, isn't that kind of a dilemma? Isn't the rat thinking, well, on the one hand, I can try this, but if I fail, I'm getting nothing. Well,
0: this, is, this is not a dilemma. This is a problem because he has nothing to lose by trying or not trying. He can win by trying, but if you, okay, he doesn't endanger himself.
1: I see. So do you don't believe... Are, are, is all of that unique to humans? Or do you think... Are there animals that act altruistically for their pack or group? They do. There are. There are. Yes.
0: There are. But uh, let's say uh, for me, that uh, let's say there is, there is also if we talk about emergence, then... Uh, Another phenomenon which is extremely interesting is the emergence of the political process. And the political process is not what we regard today when we say it's politics. This is the contrary to this. The political process is, is, let's say, to create a space where dissent is possible. And uh, uh, dissenting to authority and without being eliminated for doing so. And this can create. Uh, this is, uh, let's say, the invention of political autonomy. Why did humans invented political autonomy? We could be just herd animals, uh, uh, functioning by consensus or by fear or whatever. Right? And we invented this thing. And this is really clearly this. And the, and the, this is a lot of intelligence there. And uh, I don't believe that a computer can understand this. Uh, what is a political dilemma? Because it has to do with uh, most of the times, eh? it has to do with self-s- self-sacrifice. If you think about the people who fought for human rights and so on, eh? they didn't have a, an easy life. Eh? A lot of them were assassinated, killed, or uh, so. The next generation will forget it. That eh? uh, what uh, people have paid eh, for us to be here and have this dialogue now between me and you. And uh, this is just the fragility of democracy, because people forget. They think it is given. It is not given. We have to keep it upright with energy. And uh, so to come back to our uh, tema, I mean, do these technologies, the internet, the so-called artificial intelligence, and so on, uh, are they promoting our space of self-determination and political autonomy? Or are they reducing it? For me, this is a fundamental question. And uh, this is a question that goes far beyond privacy, because privacy is just about me. Eh? But it is privacy as something fundamental for the function of democracy Eh? and uh, of a political system. And this is the real dimension. And if these systems that we have put in place, these platforms and networks, are reducing our space for self-determination, political autonomy, and are betraying us, then we have a problem. Uh, And we have to see how we can construct systems that uh, do not do this and do really the right thing. And this is a very concrete uh, question, a very concrete also demand of the designers of the systems and the users of the systems and the rules around the systems.
1: But with regards to the Internet, and we're straying a little bit off course, but I'm fine doing that, but with regards to the Internet, don't you think it actually does help with, I mean, what it what it is, is a communication platform. It allows you to communicate with other people, them to communicate with you, and it's an information platform. Um, you know, it, it gives you access to everything in the world and you communicate with everybody in the world. Don't you think that does empower people more than it can be used against them? This is really the
0: question. And if we can answer this, then uh, we'll be in a much better place. Uh, the question was posed first by Bertolt Brecht in the 20s, past century, where he made, uh, he wrote an essay, a critique about the radio, which he said, the radio is not a very good technology. It, it will not change the political situation. It will just reinforce, because it is one too many speaking. It will reinforce the voice of the one who speaks to many. So it will reinforce really strong power. And uh, this is what happened.
1: As a matter of fact, immediately. But but just to jump in there for a second, you would have said the same thing about Gutenberg, right? No, no,
0: no, because Gutenberg was propagating knowledge. But uh, the radio was really making the voice of the one who speaks louder. And then he said that a real revolutionary technology would be a many-to-many radio. And he made some very interesting vocabulary there. And the many-to-many radio is a system which enables many to speak to many without a central authority. And this is the internet. This is the promise of the internet. It could be a revolutionary technology because it could empower the many to connect to many and to create the networks and so on and to, to diffuse this central power. But what we see something else happens at the same time. It gives rise, really, to monopolistic situations where they have platforms which control, really, a lot of the data and of our digital identities. And it is a a major flaw in the construction of the Internet. And Tim Berners-Lee has really uh, considered this uh, very clearly. And also David Clark has screwed it up. So, two of the three protagonists of the Internet era, they... They concede that something went really awfully goes awfully wrong, and of course there are cases where this networking is used really for political emancipation. There's some very nice examples. If you see how Taiwan made its democratic transition, then the networks played a massive role. They're mobilizing the the population, linking it to the people who are the activists and so on. And this led to the country in a different place. eh? So it is possible. It is the potential is there, but this is just say almost an exception. In many other cases, it goes really in the other way, in manipulation and uh, manipulating people and using our data and our identities to do totally different things that we were hoping it would be doing. So I think uh, without a major effort that this promise of the many-to-many networks as was envisioned by Brecht may not play out.
1: Although, I, I just have a hard time wrapping my head around that, because if I go back to the 60s, um, you only had three news channels to choose from. And they, you know, you had three corporations that gave you all television news. You had one newspaper to choose from, your local paper, maybe two. Uh, you, there were half a dozen major news magazines you could subscribe to. And and so it seems in the past you had much more concentration of control of the communications to one to many. And like I said, way back in the day with Gutenberg, one person, you know, with the press could write whatever they wanted and make 100,000 of them. And, you know, Thomas Paine writes Common Sense and it, it helps spark a revolution. Like one, it does amplify one voice. So, how, how do you help me understand why you think today is somehow more concentrated with a million news channels and a million of everything than it was when I we had? Say
0: I didn't say this. I didn't speak about concentration. I speak about the uh, loss of data agency, loss of identity agency, and uh, how manipulation takes place today. It is really an unprecedented I see. case. And uh, also method, you because you don't feel it anymore. I mean, the the ultimate manipulation is to not understand you are a slave. The slaves in uh, previous centuries they had an iron ball uh, linked to the to their legs; they could not run away. Now we think we are free, but uh, uh, I mean, I, I make a very clear definition. Uh, for me, the slave is the person who does not have agency over his or her identity. Eh? If other people define who you are. Eh? And I think we are there. And uh, uh, it is not so bad for me because uh, I live most part of my life outside this. But for my kids, uh, the next generation, I think we must make, a, we, we screwed it up, we must make a very conscious effort that they do not become perennial slaves. And without even understanding they are there. Because then you cannot even revolt against it if you do not even realize where you are. So this is, uh, I, I think, we don't want to go to new medieval ages with high tech hmm? and with all this uh,
1: glamour of high tech. So what 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 would that look like? Like in an ideal world, what would you hope changes? I would like.
0: The networks to give us the possibility to engage with the network uh, in a way that we engage in our normal life. Mm -hmm. That uh, we can conceal and reveal aspects of our personality which are important to us. Otherwise, we cannot be, uh, let's say, social or political actors if we are transparent and the machine, the system, knows about us everything and extrapolates into the future with uh, algorithms, what we may even be doing in the future, then we are in a panopticum, you know, the theory of panopticum of Foucault, which is really all-embracing and covers the past and the future and our presence. And uh, we're prisoners at the end. And the question is, who is at the center of the panopticum? Who controls this data and so on? Eh? It is not a person. I'm not really a, a, a person who thinks about these uh, theories, about uh, uh, really people behind the scene and so on. Eh? This is really a machine which nobody controls. It, 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 let's say it becomes autonomous, but this is not what we want. Hmm? Just to give you an example, from the American uh, uh, context, uh, what happened to the very decent person, which was General Petreus, and who was the head of the machine, of the surveillance machine, he was cut himself in the machine eh, for a totally irrelevant <coughs> story. Eh? And uh, he got purged because of this. And uh, so, if you cannot even control your personal life, what you make public and what not, how can you be a, a, let's say a social and a political actor? Eh? The machine can anytime eliminate you. Eh? And we are there. This is not the future. This, this is the past already. So the question is How can we, is there a possibility to use this new technology we have? Can we build intelligent agents which accompany us as we enter the networks? eh? And uh, uh, let's say, give the necessary information, which is necessary for the transaction we're doing. If I want to buy a pair of shoes, I don't want you to know where I am, what is my my whole history and with whom I married, which is my birth date and where I live. I just want to buy shoes. Yeah. And uh, every time I go to the internet and get to some browsers then I see, it understands where I am, who I am, and links me to other people there and so on. I don't want this. Uh, and uh, Tim Berners-Lee said, we screwed it up with these uh, browsers. Uh, well, this is wrong. We created spies in our lives. Uh, the question is, can we do it differently? And what can AI or so-called AI, do to help us really regain some agency. And this is possible. We will not give it up. Let's return course, to the... And sorry to finish this. And of course, we need some foundational standards for the internet and the protocols. Eh? And which do not make us transparent. We don't want to be transparent. We are humans. And we have... Decency means we are not transparent. And if you have people there who say, if uh, well, if you want to hide something, you'd better not do it that these people are dangerous despots. Eh? We should not let this go, let's say, un- uncommended. Eh? Because these people hide themselves, and they hide their private life from everything else, but they want us to be transparent. Really, we don't want this new tyranny. Eh? So this is, uh, uh, this is a new political system that is emerging through technology. And, uh, I mean, at least we, the technologists, we should say, is there anything we can do? What we're doing has an impact—a social and
1: uh, political impact. We cannot ignore it anymore. It's it's hard. It's hard, though, to see. You know, in in a way, we're at this point where our lives are ever more transparent, and people seem to be more intolerant of of personal um failings and so we, we see so many more of them and 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 the outrage goes up i hope maybe at some point will people will realize that you know when when you hear about somebody did something you think to yourself well you know i've probably done something like that too and that you you take it with a you know you you, you moderate it but we're not at that point right now but it's hard to see how we get there, it seems like the world you're describing would require not a change in legislation as much as a change in human nature, which is a lot harder.
0: No, 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 no. I want to preserve human nature because uh, what is changing is the demand on human nature. It is, we are are made transparent. And this is a change of human nature because humans were intransparent. If we were transparent, then you could read on my front what I'm thinking. This is not possible.
1: Well, to, to, to excuse the interruption, but I, I read it, something very compelling. Actually, it was another guest on my show who said that we're, all we're doing is really returning to the 19th century, the 18th century, where you grew up in a village. It had 300 people, and you knew every single thing about everybody. And that what's new is the industrial revolution and the anonymity that it gave you, you moved to the city, you didn't know anybody, they didn't know you and you could do whatever you wanted. And that where he actually argued, it was, it was Jared, um, who argued that we're just returning to an actual societal norm where we live in tight communities. We know everything about each other. We know everybody's business. And, um, and that's, that's just a normal thing. That's actually the, the normal state. Mm-hmm.
0: This is an interesting position. Uh, I would say that uh, and I'm not the only one who says this, uh, even under such conditions where people live together, you don't know everything about everybody. You know a lot, but you don't know everything. So I think we must preserve the capacity, to the agency, to conceal and reveal. And depending on the aspect our personality. If you are with somebody you love, then you show more. If you are somebody who is just a transgender, you want to buy shoes, then you reveal the minimum. But it cannot be that we have a medium that reveals everything about us, all the time, to, to, to people who don't know.
1: Right. Yeah? And, right. He says, It has never been there. This, right. this has
0: never been there in human history. So, we have created a panopticum which goes back in time and also prolongs into the future. And uh, what are the, what is the political implications of this panopticum? with the people who are at its center? Nobody knows.
1: Right. And and just to to close up what he what he speculated was that we would return to an era of like the Victorian times where you knew all the bad stuff about everybody, but common manners taught you to never mention it. In any case, um, I want to come back to the topic of emergence because you're a systems person. And so you you and you've mentioned emergence a couple of times. So for the benefit of the listener who that may not be stock and trade, emergence is a, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, emergence is a phenomenon where a system takes on certain attributes that none of its components have. For instance, you have a sense of humor, but none of your cells has a sense of humor. Where did that come from? And And there are two kinds of emergence. There's weak emergence, which says you could study Hydrogen all your life and you could study oxygen. And it would never occur to you that if you put them together, you got water and it would be wet. But when it happens, you can you can figure out, oh, oh I see, I see, okay, it bonded that way and this and that. And there's a link between um the, the emergent behavior and the, the components. But there's another theory, highly controversial, that posits there's something called strong emergence, where you could study it all day long. And there's no link between the attributes of the components and the emergent behavior. Some people believe human consciousness is an example, the only example, perhaps, of strong emergence. So did I, did I get that largely correct? And do you think human intelligence is emergent? And if so, do you believe that it's strong emergence or, or weak emergence?
0: I think it is strong emergence and uh, again with different words, it is uh, something emerges under conditions which you c- cannot explain what happens. That means if uh, you can explain, then it is perhaps, it is explainable, then it is a weak emergence. If you say, okay, if, uh, you can reconstruct and so on. But if, if it, it remains always an open question, then uh you can you cannot let's say take it back to the initial conditions and the boundary conditions and you say and explain what happens. Eh? And this is of course uh, a strong, a very strong uh, challenge to materialists who believe everything should be explainable. Eh? Because matter is the source of all things, it explains everything. So and uh, it is just a matter of complexity, and if uh, we have enough tools and enough time, we'll be able to explain. So, I believe that this is not the case. <laughs> this is, again, this is again not a, a scientific argument, but the other is also not scientific either. And uh, there are some examples, and uh, I, I gave you an example, the capacity of humans to, let's say, the emergence of the, let's say, of a An ambition to go beyond power, which is the political process where you have really a space where people can challenge authority and survive and create political autonomy and so on. This this is unexplicable, why it happened and how and so on. Nobody can really explain it. You cannot, because there is no natural analog to this. There is, you find this nowhere under the uh, animals and so on. And uh, also the capacity to pose this type of dilemmas, as I said. I think this is emergent, because you cannot explain it. You cannot explain why everybody else does not do it. There is one person who does. And uh, I don't think you can, uh, at the end, I think we humans are a mystery, were unexplainable, in good and bad. And uh, of course, uh, this goes against the materialistic approach to humanity. Eh? and I'm not a religious uh, person, I I do not uh, agree with any of the religions which are around, eh? but uh, I believe we should not reduce humanity beyond what is necessary. We should accept that we are a mystery, we cannot understand ourselves, and uh, we should uh, really respect each other in this mystery, and uh, try to help each other really to get some... Uh, at least inside, because it can be very rewarding. And uh, this, I would call the civilization. And uh, all this discussion about uh, trying really to emulate humanity through machines and through computers, I find this deeply disturbing, because it ignores the dimension of humanity which is really worth regarding. It, it takes our attention and energy away from what is worth really <laughs> looking at. And as such, it is detrimental in my opinion.
1: Do you believe strong emergence is a common thing or are we no, just.? It is rare. It is rare. Right. Like humans and. Do you believe that machines could, sufficiently complicated machine could in theory? Never. Never. Fascinating. You're so confident about it. Explain why.
0: Because it is a matter of immanence and transcendence. Emergence has to do with transcendence. Otherwise, there is no emergence. Because emergence means there's something that cannot be explained uh, by the conditions under which it was done. If it can be explained from the conditions, it is immanent. It goes there. Like the hydrogen and the oxygen, it goes there. You can explain it. It is immanent. But uh, the decision of a human to sacrifice herself uh, for something bigger... This is not imminent. We don't know where it comes from. And uh, we have to accept it. We have really to respect it and accept it. Uh, and we cannot put these two phenomena in the, under the same category. This is really deeply insulting to humanity.
1: Do you believe... So James Lovelock put forth something called the Gaia hypothesis, where he said that Earth seems to maintain itself in a state conducive to life, and it holds all kinds of things in equilibrium. And do you believe that it's possible that systems like that may exhibit some strong emergence? That something like the Earth could have some consciousness or intelligence about it, or...
0: Very, very interesting question. I know the theory of James Lovell, and I like it. And I like also the Gaia, I'm Greek, Gaia means the Earth. and. giving a kind of personality to uh, our... I find this very fascinating, but I cannot answer this question. Uh, I I mean, the question is whether we humans, whether we are an exception. Uh, And uh, if if so, why (laughs) and how? Uh, And uh, I tend to believe we are an exception. And uh, again, I'm not religious, I'm not a Christian or whatever. eh? But uh, there there is a kind of, we don't know where it comes from, the the capacity to search for a meaning where no meaning can be found. It is impossible to find a meaning, eh? because the meaning is somewhere else. We don't see it. It is impossible to find it here and still. Longing for a meaning in this life, in this universe. I mean, where does this come from? This is a torture. Why are we really exposed to this torture as beings? Hmm? And Nobody can answer this question. Is it a mistake? Or there is something that there is a deeper longing in us eh, that drive us there. Eh? And where does it take us to? And how do we have to behave with each other? if we take this seriously. And uh, I think these are very important questions. And the question, or this discussion about technology really takes our energy away from the, from the very fundamental questions that are important for our dignity and humanity and how we can have, live in a way that we help each other to, have, to gather human experiences where we came to live for. This is why we are here, to gather human experiences. Uh, not to replace us through machine experiences. Uh, so, really, I was uh, a few days ago and I watched this uh, total eclipse of the moon over the Greek mountains. This was something unbelievable. It happens every hundred years and together with the master conjunction every hundred thousand years. What is this? What is this for a miracle? Uh, should we replace this with virtual reality and see it every day? So... Uh, I think we should use technology more diligently, and where we think it could improve our quality of life, but not replace our experiences with technology.
1: Well, that is a fantastic place um, to leave this. What a what a fantastically interesting hour! I would love to continue the conversation another time if you're up for it. Uh, but we're out of time now. If people want to keep up with you and and read your musings or or what have you? Um, how do they do that? Well, I'm not a
0: prolific writer. Like, I mean, unlike you, I know you are a prolific writer and uh, you like wonderful books. Uh, I prefer to act. I uh, What I'm trying to do is really to give the opportunity to people to engage in a meaningful way. I, uh, I do architecture of ecosystems. My main job is uh, I'm the head of a standardization body. We create ecosystems for standardization. But in addition to this, I think we have to create ecosystems for people to come together to think about these things and to act upon them. And again, I said the technology that we are doing should really serve our really deeper longing as humans. eh? should make the quality of our life better, but they should not reduce us. And there is a reductionist approach by certain technologists and also by certain use of technology which we should resist. And we have to come together to succeed because we want our kids to have a fulfilled life, to flourish as human beings, and uh, to help them find their way through a life which is not easy and it does not get easier. My dear. And uh, the best way to follow what we are doing, we have uh, launched uh, a joint uh, program with together with MIT Media Lab, which is uh, the Global Council on Extended Intelligence. And uh, the URL is globalcxi.org. And there we got people together to think and act upon these things which, uh, which I'm talking about here. So I'm not alone. Uh, so... And it is important to make alliances and uh, to act, not just talk.
1: Well, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate your time. It's, like I said, been fascinating. And uh, I hope you'll come back sometime.
0: With great pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice, and in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.